Welcome to the BFI, British Film Institute podcast, where we slowly make our way through the Sight and Sound Top 100. Uh, thank you for having us, Brandon. <laughs> I'm happy to be, be here. here. I'm so happy to be here. Charming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to slow things down today mm. and get really intellectual on the Swampflex podcast. There's only been three movies that have topped the BFI's Top 100 movies list. and we've, no, There's only four, and we've now done three of them. Mm-hmm. So maybe Bicycle Thieves at some point. Oh, I recently watched that. Was it good? Yeah, I I loved it. Was it the greatest film of all time? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't it's know. Hard it, that's hard to say, but it's one of the most like sentimental films of all I should time. Say. It was so much. I don't know. It was not exactly what I expected. And it was much more interesting than yeah. I thought it would be. It's great. It's a good movie. Movies are good. I'm kind of softly doing a bit here because I don't know that like highbrow art cinema is my most comfortable space mm-hmm. and this topic in particular like really rattled me <laughs> where i'm like do i even like movies anymore <laughs> yeah uh you know i'm so glad you're saying that because that's why i picked this topic oh great Let's put it- no not to like i don't know it got me out of my comfort zone too. okay okay like yeah i not love movies there. do i love this particular kind of movie made me question my taste Mm -hmm. yeah not to play my hand too early but there was one i really liked and i was just very much baffled by the other three and like couldn't crack into them so i i hope i don't repeat myself too much this episode because my response has been very similar across the board to the concept of slow cinema (laughs) (laughs) and i've slowly come around to um being in the exact place where I started when we you <laughs> said slowly down. like four times so far. I love it. Uh, Starting off, keep right. throwing it in <laughs> slow. Let's slow it down, everybody. Yeah, take it slow. I'm also slowly getting ready for Overlook Film Fest this week. <laughs> uh, by the time you hear this, uh, Overlook is probably over, but we're recording early so that I could spend like three or four days at Britannia Canal Place watching the best horror movies Woo! of the year. Hell yeah! Very excited about that. I think most of us will come back for a recap of that once we've recovered. I actually did just catch up with a title that I missed at last year's Overlook called Jethica, uh, <laughs> which I am pronouncing correctly. It is right. Jessica with a lisp. I was waiting for the first movie of the festival to start, and I overheard this guy talking, like promoting Jethica to, I guess, someone he had met in line. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm in this movie that's playing at the festival. And I he mentioned that he worked on the movie with the same people he made this movie called Beast Beast with. I was like, hey, wait oh. a second. I saw that and really liked it. It was yeah. good. I remember you talking about it. So um, I chatted him up a little bit. Uh, he played the like teenage gun nut that gets oh, like man. radicalized. Oh, wow. He's really intense in that movie, right? Yeah. And in Jethica, he plays this like stalker that like stalks his like high school crush and like follows her to college and then she tries to ditch him and then basically runs to the desert. Um slight spoiler for the first act of the film with his dead body in her trunk. Uh, and uh, he's still stalking her impossibly in what appears to be like a supernatural scenario. And he is just as intense. His name's Will Madden. Uh, he's just as intense in Jethica as he is in beast beast, but it's more this like manic obsessiveness that's played kind of for humor. He's kind of like this like incel version of Beetlejuice. <laughs> Uh, and he's got this like party city makeup where his eyes are like kind of darkened out and he sort of roams around the desert like muttering himself about how much he loves jessica in this like lisp (sighs) and it's like yeah like i said intense like the earlier role i had seen him in but funnier 
And the whole cast of the movie is maybe four people. And solving the supernatural stalker scenario is like really fun and deadpan. And I think has something to say about masculine loneliness and like male friendships being very difficult to make in the modern world and how without them, like young white men in particular become like hyper violent and Mm -hmm. scary. Yeah. Jessica, it's a very like, or Jethica, it's a very (laughs) like low budget horror film. I'd especially recommend it for anyone who's like, I want to make a movie with my friends, but we don't have a lot of money or time. What can we make in like a couple months on the weekends? This movie feels very achievable to Mm. me. Uh, And I think it was directed by the guy who edited Beast Beast. And I looked at like the IMDb dual search between the two titles and a bunch of crew just kind of like switched jobs. Like the Mm. director of one did like the sound design on the other. And like, well, and my favorite part of Beast Beast was the editing. So it's kind of cool to see the uh, person responsible for that, like write, direct and produce his Mm -hmm. own film. Um, And it ended up being this like deadpan comedy about stalkers. And it's free on Hoopla, or you could watch it on Screambox, which I refuse to subscribe to. <laughs> I accidentally um, subscribed to that on like my mom's Amazon account because it was like free trial, and there was this one horror movie I was like really, really trying to see, and it wasn't available on anything else. And I forgot to unsubscribe, and she's like, "Why am I paying six dollars a month for this? What's going on?" <laughs> it's just like. What is that bringing to the table that Shudder is not already giving me? You know? And everything else. Yeah, like right. Tubi. Yeah. And I did notice a lot of Screenbox titles also show up on Hoopla. So if you have a library card, you can yeah. see most of their new titles. Hoopla's great. Hoopla's amazing. What have you been watching, Brittany? Not a lot. Um, I did watch... It's a, a short film that I've been like Ooh. wanting to see. It's... Um, Ari Aster's uh, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Yes! Mm-hmm. I'm scared to watch that movie. Oh my god. Kind of why I was avoiding it. But I love Ari Aster and like everything he's done. So I'm like, okay, let me just go ahead and do this. And it's on YouTube, so it's, it's very accessible. It was as I expected. Lots of very, very, very uncomfortable scenes mm-hmm. that are really long and you're like sort of held hostage and you have to watch all this bizarre crap happening and what it's about is a family you have a father a son and and a mother and the son is sexually abusing the father and you sort of in the beginning uh, the father walks in and his son masturbating and he's like oh like just want to let you know it's fine with what you're doing. This is healthy. You know, have a great night. Bye. And then the son's masturbating to a photo of his mm-hmm. father. And then we jump forward like 10, 15 years and the son's getting married and the father just looks super, super like zoned out, depressed. And on the wedding day, like his son, like the son's like giving his father a blow job in the backyard and the father is sort of confessing everything that's happening in a book he's writing. He's a writer and he gets a copy of it and he's going to give it to his wife so that he can kind of like sort of come clean about everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. And his son finds it and he snatches it and he's like, what are you trying to do? And sort of, it's sort of like switching roles and scenarios where normally like the father's the abuser and it's like making him, feel like he has to you know burn this and he can't tell anyone and then that kind of happens and he try and then he prints another copy of it and 
Ugh, I mean, it's hard to talk about a 20 minute short without talking about what the right. movie with what it's about. But it's it's totally sick, but it's very good. Okay. It reminded me a lot of that movie. There's a movie that you had lent me when we, when we initially did our DVD swaps called Happiness. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it gave me the same feeling as like Happiness where totally. you're like, holy crap, it feels illegal to be watching what I'm watching. I was thinking about happiness when we watch Little Children a lot. Little Children, yeah. yes. Yeah. Same stuff. I've also been afraid to watch that Ari Aster short, though, because like when I say I'm afraid, I'm afraid that I'm going to stop liking Ari Aster because <laughs> it seems very edgelordy on paper. I don't know. I didn't I didn't get that from it. It was just sort of like, yeah, this is what I thought it was going to be like. This is totally up his alley. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I didn't go deep into it and i'm like whatever what's that he what is he trying to say and i'm like i don't know i just <laughs> yeah. think he wanted to make me feel fucking weird yeah, yeah. it um, is really accomplished earnestly, yeah it's really earnestly disturbing yeah he he has another short film too about it's like about munchausen Ooh. by proxy so you know it's i i like that he focuses on familial relationships throughout his movies um but i think yeah, I feel conflicted about there's something wrong with the Johnsons. Yeah. Because it's like, I think you could read in like provocation for the sake of provocation, but it's also like really forcing you to consider the dynamics of this relationship in a different way. Yeah. And I think it does like take that relationship seriously. So it's not just kind of like, Oh, what if the like son was the abuser? You know, I I think it it is kind of more interesting than yeah. It almost reads like a bad taste sketch, but I guess you could say some things. You could say similar things about Midsummer too, where it's like yeah, yeah. parts of it are a joke, but at the same time, there's stuff in that movie that's like very devastating yeah. and like a sincere emotional level. Yeah, it it is sincerely upsetting, but I I think it's interesting. I don't yeah. know. Like normally, I would really hate that stuff but i'm like actually worried every time i watch one of those movies that i'm gonna hate it yeah like i'm, I'm worried about bo is afraid i'm getting very harsh charlie really? kaufman vibes from the trailer where i'm like i could turn on him at any any moment <laughs> but it hasn't happened I'm yet very excited i'm for so it. excited yeah i truly am like diving head first i'm just interested because you brought up happiness like yeah is there any because todd Solon's like his stuff is darkly funny but this doesn't sound like it's got any no humor, no humor, really? right? No humor, but just the way that it feels like disgusting and like you, yeah, like you just feel dirty after watching yeah. it because okay. because the bow is afraid to me seems like he's stretching out into something that could be darkly comedic. Yeah, no, this but is this doesn't not at all. Okay. I don't no. think so. I, thought- I I didn't get this. A sense no. of humor. Okay, that makes me more interested in it. Because it yeah. looked like a joke to me, just from like no. the images from it. Yeah. Right, that's what you're saying with the edge lord. Yeah. Kinda, I could see it, the tone of it being like that. I think that the visual style is very like saccharine suburbia, and that's kind of the same in his Munchausen by proxy. Okay. But I think that's just supposed to be this like, you know, it's an idyllic family, and it's but there's this like twisted underbelly. I think that's what it's trying to do. But on a lighter note, I did watch uh, Knock at the Catman. <laughs> oh, fun. Oh! <laughs> that was fun. God, it was it was good. I think that's what everyone. Yeah, we didn't yeah. really have much to say about it. After yeah, we, we walked out of the theater like, yeah. It was, it was okay. <laughs> like, what, what was kind of disappointing is it, there was no, like, 
bizarre Shyamalan twist. Like no, there wasn't it any straight. Yeah. Which was that the twist? Was that it? <laughs> there was no twist. Like you know, like yeah. Oh my god, is this like the a big Shyamalan joke? Yeah. He's just doing his pulpy, yeah, kind of almost Christian thing, like that he's been doing for a little while. And it was just like a yeah. relatively faithful adaptation of the book, except for the ending. Apparently, which yeah, the which ending. I think the original sort of, ending is much bleaker. Yeah, I yeah. kind of like what he's doing a little bit because it raises like an interesting question, which is like, if these like doomsdayers are correct and the world is going to end, what duty does this couple owe to a society that's like so cruel to them? Like nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. And maybe he goes the safest way with that question at the end, but like I don't yeah. know. I thought that was an interesting conflict. Was like, what do they owe? the world that's been so shitty to them. No, like the whole time I was like, fuck all this. Let yeah. it burn. It is, but it is very much like philosophy one-on-one. Yeah. Like entry-level philosophy question. Like if there was a train and it was going to hit. Oh, yeah. Where they have like the person on the track. Yeah. It like, was basically yeah. that. A um, Charlie problem. Charlie, yeah. yeah. I, I want to say the like scorecard of him like post uh like Blumhouse team up is getting like weaker for me. Mm. Like oh. I really liked Split a lot. And I yeah. thought the visit was too. exciting to see him like kind of strip back down to bare bones. But I kind of miss big budget goofball Shyamalan. Like he made like a better... lady in the water. <laughs> well, uh, I was thinking the happening. I don't know about that. But <laughs> I've been meaning to revisit that for a while. Oh my God. It's I was so thinking the happening good. is like really fun and like an apocalyptic yeah. movie yeah. that has a much yeah. broader scope. You know, old was disappointing because the premise was there and man, it, it didn't stick the landing. But. I love the ending. But if he's going to make like okay movies once a year, like that's worth going to the theater for. Yeah. Once, once I, I always get excited. Like, you know, stuff. you're going to yeah. be entertained. Oh yeah. Yeah. And also I thought that the, the little girl was like phenomenal. Yeah. She's so cute. She's very adorable cute. and just like really good at playing that role. And, so. and Dave Batista is so cute. Oh my God. He's great. God, he is so good at just being this hulking man who is trying to take up as little space as possible, little but also giant. Yeah. yeah. Was, his energy was so yeah. good. I liked the iconography of like him stooping down to play with her too and that mm-hmm. like Frankenstein yeah. stooping down with the little girl. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just as tragic in both versions yeah. of that. The grasshoppers. Yeah. Ugh. So Hana, what have you been watching? So first of all, I watched Scream for the first time. The original Whoa. Scream. The first Scream. Exciting. I think I'd seen the beginning and the end, maybe at some point on TV. Uh, I literally watched it yesterday and it was so good. I really loved it. I just wanted to shout that out because of Overlook. Um, the main movie I want to talk about um, is Branded to Kill, which uh, was directed by Seijun Suzuki in 1976. And it's uh, like a Yakuza film. And it was started by the production company and they like really didn't r- like the script. So they got Suzuki to rewrite it and direct it. And he took it in like a different direction. He was like a little more experimental and satirical. And they told him not to do that. And he didn't listen to them. 
and the film was a commercial and critical failure and they fired him for making movies that make no sense and no money. Um, And he sued them and he won the lawsuit, but he was blacklisted for a long time. And then it was kind of reevaluated as this cult classic and it's like been very influential for like Jim Jarmusch and Quentin Tarantino. Um, so it's about this hitman who is sent out on this series of jobs, and his last job is given to him by this like mysterious nihilistic woman. Um, also, he is the the hitmen are ranked, and he's like the number three hitman, and then there's like number one who's the you know the best hitman. There's like two, four, and five. Anyway, so. He's on this last job, which is extremely difficult, and he is about to shoot his target, and then, like, a butterfly lands in front of the scope of his gun, and he misses. So then there's, like, it's, like, open season on this guy. Uh, also, this man, is, he got, like, cheek implants. The, the actual actor got cheek implants, so he has these really round, like, chubby cheeks and then in the movie he has this fetish for like the smell of boiled rice so throughout (laughs) throughout the movie he's yeah it's wild throughout the movie he's like telling his wife to boil some rice for him and there's this like long (laughs) sex scene where he like they're like having sex and then they stop and he's like boil some more rice and she's like no stop it we can't go anymore and then they boil rice and they like go at it again they're like all over the house anyway so that's like the first half of the film and the last half of the film is him just like fighting off all of these um, hitmen, ending with like the number one hitman who comes after him. And this movie is just so fucking cool. It's black and white. There's like a bunch of cool car stuff, these long wide shots of cars driving through these like really isolated, like barren areas. There are these really like sandy areas with these big strange concrete structures where these shootouts happen there's just some real there's some really beautiful cinematography uh there are a lot of like openings where light is cutting in and like projecting into these like very angular shapes there's this one shot of the like nihilistic woman shot through a keyhole and she's like getting something out of her garter and there's this wall of butterflies behind her um and then it's also just like really weird and funny uh like there's this series of assassinations that he um he carries out and they're all like done in these really strange ways there's one where he's hiding inside of a huge like cigarette lighter and every time it opens he has the opportunity to shoot the target and then it closes again and he has to stop it's like it's so bizarre um oh and then at the when he finally meets the number one assassin like they have this really weird uh mental cat and mouse game and the number one hitman is like berating him for his technique and he's like you're not well trained and it's, it's just very funny like it's absolutely absurd and so cool and i like fucking loved it and i would just encourage everybody to watch it if it sounds like your stuff sold I definitely hear the tarantino like, yeah absolutely there that's great i haven't seen that one but i did watch it's called take aim at the police van Mm-hmm. Which is another like Yakuza from the same time period. And like, 
same vibe though. Like I can see like, Oh, Tarantino in his little video store days, like just rerunning that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like the mix of like the French new wave with like the black and white cinematography and then like the jazzy scores and just like overall like feeling of cool. Yeah. I, I really want to like dive more into that genre. So James, what have you been watching? So <laughs> the episode today is about slow cinema. And so I've been kind of getting myself ready outside of the films that we've watched that we're going to talk about. Was watching a lot of Robert Bresson. And I, I was trying to think of like a modern, I guess somewhat popular slow cinema film to watch. And so I revisited because I read Brandon's review on Swamp Flicks for um, a ghost story. Who a movie I did not like. <laughs> right. Which you did not like. And I was like, well, I really liked it. And like Brandon hated it. And this is going to be a good A24 slow cinema thing. And so I, I rewatched it. And my appreciation of the film definitely diminished, which was interesting. And I... It's a pretty basic premise. Casey Affleck dies early on in the movie, and he essentially is stuck in this house um, where him and his girlfriend lived. And he essentially, it's it's a lot of long takes of just him in this very traditional ghost outfit, (laughs) just kind of standing there, watching her be sad, watching her go home with a guy watching her. There's a long scene of her eating a pie and something about it on rewatch didn't click. Cause I had been watching a few of these at this point, but it was really kind of thought provoking about like, why isn't it working? Like the slow cinema as a technique, like I see what this film is doing, the five minute pie scene. And I think the scene in the beginning where he's like dead on you know, the table at the autopsy or whatever. And there's a long four or five minute shot of him just laying there. And then he pops up and becomes a ghost. And like that worked for me. And so it like got me really thinking about why are some of these techniques working in this film and why are some not? And I think it's a good segue into what we're going to talk about today, because a lot of these techniques are used in the films we're going to discuss. And I think they are effective in like kind of wildly different uh, ways. Yeah. How would you like to find slow cinema? Cause I think that's important to do up front. Well, so I was going to do a little intro. For, okay. I don't want to spoil that for the film. I'm going to, cause the film that I picked for this topic, yeah. I think is an extreme example. I feel like we're like already talking about it a little bit though. I guess that's why I'm jumping sure, a little yeah. bit, but like, to me, there's like a stunt quality to it. Like, I'm going to sit here and make you sit on this image for a few minutes. Usually like a static camera. Like the pie scene in that movie, that's a stunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like watching her eat that's that entire stunt. pie, that's a stunt. And I feel like a lot of these movies have a kind of showiness to them that annoys me sometimes when it's not purposeful. Yeah. And this one pushes itself and it gets to like a really weird ethereal place. But they, it also has that Bonnie Prince Billy monologue Yeah, that like that's what stuck with me was like he was talking about how like art is ephemeral. It doesn't last. And like no one's going to remember anything we make in 100 years after we die. And I'm just sitting there listening to that being like, then why am I watching this shit? I should be watching (laughs) something fun. Well, I will. The only thing I would say to that is like, 
I think the film's viewpoint is that he's actually wrong. He's the only thing that makes sense in that movie. That, <laughs> I think what to me what I got out of it is like the relationships and the love we have between each other does matter and it will last like beyond death. And I think Bonnie Prince Billy in there is like kind of the antithesis of what the film is really trying to say. I feel like he was arguing my point yeah. <laughs> for me. But but to your point, I think the scene, like I said, where she views the body and then she leaves the room and he's just laying there and you're like, okay, he's laying there. He's dead. But that moment where he pops up and becomes a ghost is really effective. And it's using that slow cinema technique for a purpose. It's not like you said, a stunt of just watching someone eat a pie for four minutes. And there was one more scene in the beginning that I thought used those techniques well, which is when um, she's dragging something out to the curb to bring it away, basically. And first, I was thinking, okay, why is she, like, what is the purpose of the shot? Why is she doing this? And then the longer it went on, I thought, well, why isn't he out there? with her you know because that shot is showing her effort trying to drag this huge like box out to the curb and she's all alone so the length of that shot is communicating something about the effort that she's going through alone which i thought was interesting and then with the pie scene like the longer it went on the more distracted i got by just like that pie looks horrible yeah you know i I was like thinking my mind was going in directions that weren't like useful for my understanding the film. It's like, okay, I get the point of this and there's nothing else that I'm getting out of it. So now I'm just like totally taken out of it. Yeah, like one of two things can happen, which is that so little is happening that when something does happen or there's like a minor change, then it means a lot. Yeah. And you're like electrified by that change. Yeah. The other thing that could happen is your mind drifts. Yeah. And you're thinking about your groceries or like what you have to do at work tomorrow. Mm Totally. I, I Well, I think we need to get yeah, into yeah. it. <laughs> Let's get in there. Let's dig in. Wait. Oh, the one other thing that I wanted to say about Ghost Story is that there are these like Boney Vare adjacent pop Ugh. tracks that are just, it was like, it made me physically ill. Awful. I was like, who is, and the only way that I could accept it was after thinking about it, like, okay, the movie wants me to hate him and wants me to think his music is bad and that he is a piece of shit. That's the only way I could deal with it. I did, and not that there's any rules in slow cinema, but one like technique is the non-use of music. You know, yeah. and or if you're going to use music, you use it to great effect, and yeah. you got to pick your spots. And I think to your point, like when he, you finally get to hear this musician's music, and it's pretty bad you're yeah like, it's just like shit i've been sitting in silence for a whole movie and now i'm listening to a now song now i get this that's does the not movie very think good. it's bad though i don't think it does no it doesn't i, it's I had to convince i was yeah. like this is the only way that this makes sense to no. me i can't the possibly movie, movie be expected to like this person yeah i don't remember shit about this movie i think yeah. it ultimately is like i think I it's it. pretty good it it got something out of me by the end but i think it's an interesting example of what we're going to talk about of how these techniques can work and really add depth to a story and also like make you bored as shit. I wonder, I wonder how much of that is environment too. Cause I'm assuming yeah. we also go story in the theater versus like watching some of these at home. How much, how easier it is to be immersed in that yeah. a question. We will come back to many. We times. will come back to for sure. <laughs> Most movies lean towards you. 
They lean toward you aggressively with their hands around your throat, trying to grab every section of your attention. These type of films lean away from you, and they use time, and, and as other people would call it, boredom, as a technique. Eventually, if you're smart enough on how you use these techniques, now you're doing something really rare. You're activating the viewer. Uh, and once the viewer starts to move on his own, it's so much more powerful. So today we're going to be talking about slow cinema. Kind of want to talk about how I even got on this topic, because it was sort of a progression where it started with, I was reading about this very famous book by Paul Schrader, who you know wrote Taxi Driver, directed First Reformed, and and he was also like a critic in the 70s. And he wrote this really influential book called Transcendental Style in Film. And I have not read the entire book, but I was reading snippets at work. It was like really interesting to me because he talks about three directors. It's Ozu, Robert Bresson, and Dreyer as being emblematic of transcendental style. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? And again, it's not like there's steadfast rules, but the general idea is using these techniques of like long takes, non-narrative, boredom, and having no music. So it's really like extracting all the things out of film that make it, I hate to say, entertaining. (laughs) But I think his point is that they're transcendental in that they become spiritual. Like to get a spiritual experience from a film, you have to take out all of the things that distract us, make it entertaining. And we really have to like sit in these moments of silence. And it's like a meditative sort of process. And he, for him, Bresson was like the guy that that's the style and to varying degrees, the other director. So then I started getting into Bresson, I watched um, La Argent, I watched Pickpocket, and I I couldn't quite like get with his stuff. Something was like disconnecting, but I understood kind of what he was saying, Paul Schrader, about the style. And then reading about how that essentially kind of evolved into slow cinema, that it's the idea that Modern films have taken that sort of style and those techniques and used it in various ways to get to kind of a temporal, spiritual realm of filmmaking. And so I think we picked a very good crop of movies here that kind of hit it from different places. One speech that I saw or presentation Paul Schrader give, it was like, from a few years ago, he was talking about like modern transcendental style and slow cinema. And one point that he made was it's gotten more extreme, that the takes have gotten longer. And what has ended up happening is it goes in two directions where it's either surveillance, where we're just watching something happen, or it goes into a museum. And I think the film I picked is a quote unquote, museum film in the sense that like it's removing all narrative and it's all experiential. So the film I pick is Sleep Has Her House. It's directed Scott Scott Barley. Barley. Yeah, who 
he did everything. It's all him on his iPhone. He's a Welsh filmmaker. And I had actually seen a few of his short films and it's pretty much the same style. This was originally intended to be a four hour looping art installation piece that he, over the course of like 18 months, edited down into an hour and a half film that we had to like track the shit down. I mean, it was hard to find either pay the however many euros. Uh, I think after shipping and stuff, it was it pretty, was, it would have been like $60. Also, it's only a pre-order. So we wouldn't have been able. Yeah. It comes out of 420. 420. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark your calendars. Um, but we downloaded the digital file and we watched it here at Brandon's house. Oh, there were a few steps in between those two. Points. Yeah. yeah maybe. <laughs> it, it was definitely a process to, get there but i was fascinated because reading some of the reviews i just love polarizing shit and mm-hmm. it was either like a five star this is the future of horror or one star like why the hell am i watching this the most boring thing i've ever seen in my life and my experience with the film was probably more towards the like this is pretty great um it's going to be hard to talk about because it has very little narrative. I mean, we saw Skinema Rink. That's the closest thing I can compare it to that I've seen this year. But it's like Skinema Rink nature photography. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Instead of hallways. It's a lot of still shots of nature where the light is slowly being drained from it. And I guess the only narrative you can really hold on to is like there are these two deers that <laughs> are probably come up in the beginning and then they come up towards the end. And it's a lot of still static shots of beautifully shot things of nature, the Welsh countryside. Yeah. And just light slowly getting sucked out of the shot. There is a suggested narrative at the start, though, with the um, paragraph of like title cards like yeah. telling you a, like a premise. So I'll just read it. Sure. It's the only text in the film. It says, it's a poetry reading. Uh, the shadows of screams climb beyond the hills. It has happened before, but this will be the last time. The last few sense it, withdrawing deep into the forest. They cry out into the black as the shadows pass away into the ground. Very cool. It's like mood setting, like metal lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. And the the whole film has this vibe of like black metal album covers (laughs) in in real time. Especially the end with the trees. Like those like dark trees. Oh, that that is my favorite image. So again, I guess we can talk about like the images and the mood it evokes, but to go back to kind of what I was saying with this belongs in a museum, I do think this is slow cinema at the absolute extreme. And you could make the case that like, and this did play at some film festivals, but you could make the case like this don't belong in a movie theater. It belongs in a museum. And what is that distinction So I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I was hypnotized by it. I definitely had moments of boredom where I had to like bring myself to attention, but I thought the images were really cool and gnarly and metal and the idea of darkness overtaking all of existence was like enough for me to latch my mind onto to like kind of stimulate myself intellectually. So I enjoyed it. So I'll open it up to you guys. Like, what did you guys think of Sleep as Her House? I like 
I think the way that we watched it really influenced how I felt about it. Like, I don't think I could have watched this by myself. Mm-hmm. We really did try to get, like, the best atmosphere we could possibly. Yes. Like, we went out of our way to make the movie, like, hit as hard as it could. <laughs> yeah. It was a very, like, meditative and hypnotic experience for me. And, like, I cannot, like, remember the last time that I truly like did not have a million thoughts going on in my head i wasn't like reaching for my phone for something there wasn't there was just nothing going on and it, i kind of like went back to this place that I, I think the last time i felt that way i was probably like a preteen of you know how like sometimes like i don't know when i was younger i would like lie down i even talked about this and like you know stare so hard at the popcorn ceiling and make faces mm-hmm. out of like the the little dots are like when you stare at a ceiling fan that's like going real fast but you focus on like one blade you were describing skin of a rink yeah, yeah. you have to see skin of a rink <laughs> you must you must i keep thinking about the the waterfall scene yeah that was like the 10 minutes scene. i kept like watching the top of like a little stream of water and like following it down over and over and over and over and over and over yeah. again for like 10 minutes straight to where it looks super, super slow. And then I would like zone out and then watch it go real fast. Um. <laughs> yeah. And the like grainy textures, you can start to like hallucinate or like see things that right. maybe aren't there. It was like almost like tapped into this like part of like my imagination that I haven't like tapped into for a long time. It's a very like, I don't know, liberating experience. But I don't know. There was something just really cool about it that I can't put my face. I thought I was going to hate it to start off with. I was scared. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, it's movie night. And I picked this movie. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to hate it. I didn't find it boring at all. And I don't know. I just and it, it, it made me start to think about like, you know, maybe I need to connect with nature more, even though it was like apocalyptic nature. Um, I don't really want that, but, <laughs> you know, just how there's such peace in the silence of, like, being outside and being surrounded by everything. I don't know. I got good feelings from it, and obviously this is, like, art installation stuff, which I totally dig. I'm yeah. that, like, psycho that, like, sits in that the room at, at Noma <laughs> on the fourth floor, like, watching everything. I- but I could see this being shown at like broad on like 420 and a bunch of stoners like, Whoa. oh, yeah, like, or how cool, like an immersive experience where you get sprinkled with like mist for the yeah. waterfall scene. Someone lights some incense whenever shit starts to burn. How cool. We did have to check the DVD player at one point. I was like trying really hard to wait that out and be like, I don't want to sound like an asshole. Oh, it was the sun- <laughs> file frozen. That was the sunset. Yeah, scene, yeah. Right? Pink, Sun- yeah, yeah, like pink cotton candy. And look, we all plants. remember it. We all yeah. remember the scenes. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I don't have anything negative to really say about it or like anything gushing to say about it to be like, oh my God, it's changed my life. It was great. Yeah. I, I think I had like more of a mixed experience. There were some scenes that were really, really effective and kind of hallucinatory, uh, especially, you know, scenes that are with this massive nature. And then there's one small figure moving. There was this other scene where it was like kind of moonlight spreading out over like a landscape or moss or something. And the way that the camera was moving, you couldn't tell exactly what you were looking at. It's like either you were looking so closely at grass or it was like 
like miles and miles away and you were just looking at a landscape. Uh, also, the waterfall scene, it was like an optical illusion at some point just with the zooming out and then the movement of the water down. It's like I felt like the TV screen was rising up and Whoa. it was really strange. Like I actually have never experienced something like that where my perception of the room is changing because of what's on the screen. But then there were other, I think this, there were some still scenes that worked for me, especially if like the sun was setting that were just kind of like evocative of the place that I grew up. And then there were scenes that were, I mean, basically like standing photographs where my mind did start to wander to other stuff. And I was like less connected with what was happening. But I think out of all of the movies that we watched, I would have the hardest time watching this again. But I think it's like incredible what he pulled off and the mood that he was able to create and the narrative he was able to create with what he shot and how he shot it. I mean, I think it's like a pretty amazing feat. And even though my attention waned during a couple of scenes, like it's still... It wasn't a boring movie. And I think that that's a feat in itself, too. Well, the people who would defend slow cinema as like the height of the art form would tell you that boredom has textures. Right. Like, there's different Whoa. kinds of boredom. Yeah. And like boredom can be an intellectual exercise. <laughs> and like that's when I start to like get bored listening to people talk right. about boredom. <laughs> like, And me and James talked about this a lot, like because there were scenes like even within this movie there were scenes where my mind was wandering but it was wandering like in the context of the movie like the actual the image that was on the screen or you know whether it was changing or not brought me to a place that allowed me to think more deeply about the film but there were some scenes where I was brought out of it and so is that like is there some skill on the part of the filmmaker that's associated with crafting the kind of boredom that keeps people like engaged with the text of the film? Or is it like on the viewer to keep themselves engaged and dig for meaning at all times? Yeah, I've heard of this, <laughs> this idea of um, that slow cinema is lean in cinema that, you know, if you're watching a big budget blockbuster that has a thousand cuts crazy editing you're like sitting back in your seat and you're just absorbing it it's happening to you but through boredom you kind of have to like lean into it and think and like put your own meaning onto it it's making and us like, put in the work i know and i know from what brandon was saying that's kind of getting into the like technical people that love slow cinema they're kind of talking out their ass but like i do kind of agree with that like when it works when it's really good, and not all these were good for me, and we'll get into the other movies, but like when it's really good, I do like lean forward. And I'm like, like, oh yeah, like humans are gonna die out and there are gonna be animals left, but the animals are gonna die, and then eventually the sun will die, and uh Whew. the human you know, the earth will go black, and this is probably what it's gonna look <laughs> like. And yeah, this film at least like had themes. And images that like kept me engaged. And I think it just varies from film to film, but it it can work. I wish I would had that experience where like I was thinking about the content more than the form. And like 
maybe it's because I elected myself ambassador of making sure this movie would work. (laughs) I was just thinking a lot about like, okay, the nature stuff is interesting in its face, but it's not like professionally shot, like, um, you know, planet earth Mm blu-ray quality. It's like someone on an iPhone, which is a really good camera filming this like beautiful Welsh nature footage. Right. But even as beautiful as that camera is, it's still a digital camera and there's like a digital imposition on the nature. So like you have to think about how those two things are communicating with each other. And particularly in this movie, which has a lot of like black screens for like Mm -hmm. minutes on end sometimes, there's this like undulating digital grain that's happening Mm -hmm. that's almost throbbing. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, all right, let me let me describe the four-hour adventure of getting this onto the screen. But like, <laughs> the file that we bought off this director's website was 16 gigs, which is too big to fit on to most USB drives, which can only take a four-gigabyte file. So I had to learn how to reformat a USB drive to fit it on there. Even then, the 16-gig file was too big for my Blu-ray player to play off a, a USB import, so I had to like re-download the file into a movie-making software that I had downloaded so we can create Swamplex YouTube videos. <laughs> so I haven't touched that in years because that was a dead-end project. Uh, I re-exported it to a 9-gigabyte file, which was the best quality I could get that the Blu-ray player could still handle. So there was some compression there. So when I'm watching this undulating digital grain, I'm thinking, and what I'm watching, is it his camera that is adjusting to the dark and it doesn't have depth perception? So I'm watching the camera readjust over and over again and trying to find its place. Am I watching the compression of the video of what I created? Or am I watching my deep my Blu-ray player struggle to play this nine gigabyte file that fried its brain so badly it wouldn't even turn <laughs> off after the movie was over <laughs> uh, and I had to unplug it? And, you know, as I'm thinking about that, it's like, well, does it really matter? Is this like uh, like John Cage's piece where he like opened the window in New York and it's like the presentation itself is this one of a kind art event that the four of us are experiencing. And like mm-hmm. no one will ever again see this exact digital grain or hear that car go by playing uh, whatever rap song was uh, playing on Broad Street as we were watching it. <laughs> uh, so like... I'm thinking more about the presentation and the imposition of the artist, the imposition of the technology, the way that that is conflicting directly with the nature. And the more I think about it, the less I'm like, is this even interesting? And like, (laughs) I think when a movie is this sparse and there's not actually that much happening, it has to be so precise and purposeful for me to like lean in and like find the stuff that I'm excited about. So like, there are scenes like that waterfall is gorgeous. Some of the storm imagery was really cool uh, towards the end of like the emotional climax. The sort of um, blinding ring light flashing mm-hmm. at the oh, end where it goes into its like Luxaterna moment was very fun. <laughs> but like there are things about it that annoyed me to the point where it was like almost like a problem of like intellectual rigor and follow through where like when a shot would repeat of the stars from the same angle and then switch filters midway through, and then the shot would repeat again, but nothing had really changed. Or like all of the movie is all these static shots that go on for minutes on end, except not really. Cause in the storm scenes, the camera drifts and it looks almost like mechanical in the way it's drifting to follow the tree swaying. And then there's this other image that like, instead of lasting for minutes on end, it's like one of the most exciting images in the movie. It's like during the storm, a tree lights on fire. And that 
shot lasts for a second instead of a minute. And it's like, hey, wait a second. Like, I want to look at that. <laughs> and this is the one time you're not like, you're like withholding yeah. the like mm. the payoff. Like, why? And when I ask questions about like why those decisions were made, I can't come up with anything that satisfies me either intellectually or emotionally. And like what I come to overall, especially like knowing that this is all he does, is like he has a cool aesthetic and a cool mode. I just don't know that he's found a way to like make it into something like fully thought through and coherent in a way that I find fully satisfying. Obviously, other people have met him halfway and found it satisfying. I I mean, I find it satisfying, but not perfect. Like, I think he's still early in his career and can yeah. perfect this style. In the same way, again, we keep talking about Skinema Rink, but like that guy was doing YouTube videos for years. And this guy's been doing like little short films for you. Like, there is a version of this that knocks it out of the park. I don't think that this is it yet, but there are flashes of brilliance. Like the scenes that we all mentioned where you're like, damn, I like, I feel something and the technical side is there and like, it's hitting me on some emotional level, but yeah, it's not, it's not perfect. And I don't ask for this precision when I'm watching a messy micro budget genre movie where someone's like flying by the seat of their pants and like trying to like squeeze entertainment value out Mm -hmm. of like a couple weekends worth of like, you know, whatever budget they can scrape together. When that kind of movie is messy, I'm like, wow, how impressive and how entertaining. But like when this kind of movie is messy, it bothers me more. And it's like you've stripped away the entertainment and I'm just supposed to like feel like I'm in the hands of a master or something. Well, but to me, it's just like a dude with an iPhone alone made this. And like if it has moments of brilliance, that is something admirable. Like, yeah, I had a hard time judging it from shot to shot i was more just taken by the overall like dude a guy with an iphone can make this like yeah. that's cool would you have felt different about it if you wouldn't have known that he made it with an iphone like if you would have gone into it like totally blind i mean it definitely affects that, that for no me. no it's definitely like, a question like if i watch a movie and i learn like oh it was done on a budget of a thousand dollars like you have a greater appreciation for yeah it. like damn that's yeah. hard to pull off like and the fact that he shot this and he like apparently hand draws stuff over the images. Yeah, that's that? what it looked that's what it looked like to yeah. me. Yeah. What parts? The like when the I don't know. Well maybe this is wrong, but I felt like a lot of the figures like moving, that didn't uh, look okay. like it was like there was especially one shot where it was like huge green forest and this little like white moving figure going and that did not look like it was an actual figure. I did like the otherworldly figures kind of like, that's where the leaning in works. You're like, what is that? Is right. It kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that stuff works really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And like, you know, kind of like what you were saying, Brittany of like looking at a popcorn wall and like maybe <laughs> yeah. you can see faces, you know, shifting and very much like skin of like seeing figures in the forest that might be trees and might be something else. Uh-huh. And like bodies um, in the forest. Like, I think that those horror elements were super effective. I'm, I'm not proud of like the intellectual, anti-intellectual <laughs> stance that I'll be taking for the rest of this conversation. It's like even Skin of I, you know, I appreciated it. I was bored by it, not in an entirely productive way, but like it pays off in a way that I found satisfying by yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. And there were like moments of like really intense dread that like 
you know, paid off the like patience it requires. Yeah. But then we watched like the Outwaters, which I think requires an equal amount of patience and goodwill <laughs> from the audience. And then like the payoff on that is like so much more traditional yeah. and like, you know, yeah. quantifiable. And for some reason it worked for me better because I, I I guess I'm a little bit of a simpleton. I need like the bread and circuses to <laughs> I mean, like keep I, me entertained. Of those three, I probably liked Outliers the least. A lot of people too, yeah. Which is, yeah, because it's that traditional kind of horror payoff, even though it is I- experimental. Where I was like, I don't know. I like shit that's like really trying to push it. And the Sleep Has Her House definitely pushes it, even if it kind of like skin of a ring. It's an admirable effort, if not like, a great film, you know. And we'll t- we'll talk about two directors later in this conversation that like have become like two of the most respected like art house names mm-hmm. at least uh, among the people who like pay attention to what plays a can every year. And like I don't think these early films that we picked from them are their like most highly lauded works, but they were, you know, singled out as directors of great potential and they depending on who you are might might have paid that off later as they like developed their sure. style more. So yeah, I, I don't think that was his name Scott Barley or Kyle Edward Ball? Like, I don't think that they've hit their limit of what they can achieve, you know? Like, they'll do better work or at least more impressive work. And I think they're basically making a name for themselves by doing these, like, kind of stunts. Like, it's, like, kind of, mm-hmm. like, easier to get attention in a way by doing less. It's like, can you believe there's an eight-minute shot of a waterfall? You have to see this movie. Like, it's it's almost like a little bit of a meta joke. Skin of a Ring more so than this one, I think. This one's a little humorless, comparatively. Yeah, but it also has a weird narrative, I think, that Skin of a Ring... No, I don't know. They're probably narratively on the same level. Yeah, I think they're both exciting. And I don't know, I feel... I just listened to a podcast from Colors in the Dark about liminal space horror movies, and I know that the, that uh, Sleep Has Her House was... It was made in 2017. Mm-hmm. I think. And it it's being released on Blu-ray this year, so I feel like this time is like really ripe for this kind of film and it's super exciting to see people in their nascency like getting some cool ideas out there. who watches an Ackerman film remembers every single detail because of her use of time. And she didn't really care about our squirming in our seats or, you know, what point we wanted her to cut to the next shot, please, because I'm at the limit of my patience here. She did know on some level exactly when to cut. All right. So my... Best movie of all time. That's right. That's right. This is um, Jean Dillman... 23 Quad du Commerce, uh, 1080 uh, <laughs> Bruxelles. I, I don't know. That's as much. That's, <laughs> that's, that's actually wonderful. Do. And I'm going to say Jean Dielman for the rest of this. Uh, or just JD. Segment. J, JD, baby. Um, okay, so this is uh, Jean Dielman, directed in 1975 by Chantal Ackerman, who is a Belgian uh, director. I've wanted to see this movie for a long time. I was always very intimidated by the runtime and I never really knew anything about it except for, I mean, I feel like you get the boilerplate constantly. It's you're watching this woman in her small apartment in Brussels doing chores. 
and she is a prostitute. So the movie is three and a half hours long, and it follows her for three days. It begins and ends with encounters that she has with Johns that she has sex with. She um, sees them out of her apartment, uh, and her son lives with her. She spends all of her time taking care of the house, preparing for her son to come home, doing the groceries. She knits him a sweater. She shines his shoes. I mean, her entire life revolves around caring for the house, keeping it in order, and like maintaining this life for herself. Um, she is a widow, so she lives alone with her son. Um, I really loved this movie. I thought it was so fucking good. This, to me, was the prime example of getting lost in slow cinema in a way that enhances my experience. Like every chore that she was doing, I was wondering, you know, what is she thinking? I was focusing on these little details of her life. I was paying attention to the effort that she puts forth to maintain her routine. And so she is see she sees three men throughout the film. The film opens with her, uh, with the first one coming. You see the progression of her normal day from like evening to the next evening. After she sees the second man, something happens. Immediately after that, she forgets to boil the, or she forgets to take the potatoes off. They're overcooked and her routine is like ruined and she has to do all of these things to, you know, correct her mistake. And she has these little meltdowns of routine beginning from that point onward to the end of the movie. And Brandon, you were talking earlier about like moments where you're used to a routine in slow cinema and then something changes that is kind of electrifying. And that's exactly how I felt about all of these little things. Like she drops a spoon and I'm like, <gasps> like I, I gasp. <laughs> she misses um, a button on her sweater and it's like, yeah. oh my God. Like, yeah, <laughs> she, she forgets to put this. She has this money um, she has money stored in this big bowl that she puts a lid on. She forgets to put the lid back on the bowl. I'm like, Jean, you forgot you forgot the lid. Go get the lid, Jean. Um, and she lives with this like really ungrateful. God, I fucking hated this guy. What Her a ungrateful yeah. son. Yeah, Her he's son just really, awful. yeah, who like is kind of puritanical sexually yeah. and like doesn't, has no understanding of like women's relationships with their own sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's just really incredible to like sink into this woman's routine throughout these three days. And it really reminded me of this short story I read a long time ago that I really love called Heat Death of the Universe by Pamela Zoline, which is about this 1970s housewife who is like basically trying to fight the entropy of her life and like her children. Like she's cleaning up after a birthday party and there's like sticky stuff all over the place. Like it does such an incredible job of showing the painstaking care it takes to keep a fastidious controlled household. And I don't really want to talk about the ending because I knew nothing about it going into it. And I feel like that enhanced my experience a lot, but it is like, it was shocking to me. Like I absolutely gasped in the final scene it was anyway. I just I really love this movie. I think we kind of have to talk a little bit not, not about maybe the consequences, but like what is her undoing? Mm-hmm. Do you, are you comfortable yeah, with that? yeah. I think that that's because that you get a 
touch of that too yeah, yeah. in the middle of the film. Which the, the way I interpreted it was that, you know, the second John, the first John is like a routine thing. Yeah. She services her client and then uh, makes it back in time to turn the potatoes off on the water right. yeah. uh, and drain them in time for dinner. Um, and the second client, she lingers longer than she should mm-hmm. in the room. She comes back and her hair is must. And that's when things start to like fall apart. So at that point, it's either that she has experienced her first orgasm or she got close to achieving her first orgasm. Yeah. We don't we don't really get closure on which one it was. And right after that is when she has this like lengthy conversation with her son where he talks about women's relationship with orgasms. Like he fucking knows anything. Right. <laughs> but, uh, she kind of shuts him down. She shuts him down as like uncomfortable with the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we know that she's like bothered by it. Mm-hmm. And then the final John we watch them have sex. It looks extremely physically unsatisfying and like not exciting in any way. Right. But we watch her kind of against her will achieve orgasm. Yeah. From what I, I mean, for what you can tell physiologically, it looks like that's what's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't look like something she wants. Right. And like that, that relationship with her sexuality is like the undoing of her daily routine. Yeah. And I did watch an interview with Chantal Ackerman, and sh- what she says is that this, with the second man, she does have her first orgasm. Oh, uh, okay. And I thought that was so heartbreaking. Like, for me, she has lived her entire life at the service of men. Yeah. You know, either, I assume her relationship with her husband was very much the same as her relationship with her son, and... Her son is just like really ungrateful, in my opinion, or like, if not ungrateful, then just not aware of everything that she's doing for him. And like, her one rule for him is that he not read at the dinner table and he just continues. Yeah, like he does it every night and she has to tell him to put his book away. Like, just give her five minutes of your time. And her routine is totally centered around the home and her son and she really doesn't dedicate any time for herself at all except for maybe like the occasional trip to this coffee shop that lasts literally five minutes and then she's out the door and there's that book the awakening by kate chopin about you know a woman who's like uh self-actualizing and i thought it was interesting to have like the consequence of her experiencing pleasure which is like a very personal and personally gratifying experience is like kind of like fear and it's like interrupting the selfless routine in a way that she really like can't handle it's a very controlled routine where like she is like on top of each of these tasks Mm -hmm. so like something happening physically to her against her will is like i I could see how that'd be a huge shift but also like it feels like such a snapshot of like what feminist ideology was in the mid-70s where like you know so much of what happens in the movie is like labor that women do on a daily basis that you wouldn't normally see yeah and then also i feel like if this movie were made at any other time since then her achieving orgasm would have been this like liberating thing you know the like sex positive feminism of the 90s would never have ended the way this movie does yeah she would have like had an orgasm and been like well sorry son see ya and then just like left this is a very mainstream comparison but like pleasantville like when she has an orgasm her color enters her world you know like it's a different kind of like payoff yeah it i took it as like when she achieved orgasm like she it's like she had control over everything Mm -hmm. and that's like the one time she kind of probably lost control and 
some people can look at that as like freeing and she took it as like holy shit you fucking ruined everything yeah yeah. Yeah. that's how i took it too Mm -hmm. it's like just watching her just kind of mechanize like going through the motions doing her chores but she seems to get some like satisfaction out of that having control but then like you were saying hana the moments where she has time to herself where she's in a coffee shop she seems lost like she's kind of just staring off uncomfortable well i don't have anything to do i don't have any not she doesn't have an internal life but she's just like what do i do with myself and then the Mm -hmm. orgasm kind of brings out like that loss of control and she just can't take it what really threw me off about this movie based on like how it's been described the like many times it's come up over the years is like i expected it all to be slow and it's really not like yeah almost the first two hours are incredibly busy like she's Mm -hmm. running from room to room doing all these tasks it's an incredibly like anxious movie because she's like steamrolling through this like carefully timed out routine that she has to hit every single mark like every few seconds and then once the routine breaks down and goes into quote-unquote chaos to me chaos is like manic and like anxious but in this movie's language chaos is like when she'll sit down for five minutes and just stare at the wall <laughs> and like nothing happens. Or the that um peeling of the potatoes. Yeah. Scene, that was like the breakdown. Cause I was like breaking down as a viewer too. I was like, oh my God, you need to stop peeling those potatoes. Like <laughs> and she like peels the first two and then she looks at a third potato. She's like, no, I can't. Yeah. Just she can't do it. But like I think that the technique worked really well there. I was like feeling her pain. Yeah. And I I think I was comparing like that scene to the pie eating scene in Ghost Story where in Ghost Story, I was like, okay, I'm watching this woman eat a pie for two minutes and you're feeling her like her grief, but I wasn't really feeling it. I was just very aware like Rooney Mara is eating a pie. With John Dealman peeling those potatoes, it's like you can see how tense and upset she is. And like even the act of peeling them is this kind of like violent action. So there was it wasn't just like watch John Dealman peel potatoes for two minutes. Like every second that was passing had like a building emotional depth for It's me. not an attention-grabbing stunt. It's like part of the intellectual structure of the film. Right. And this one definitely worked for me more than any of the other ones because of that, like, it felt well thought out. I felt like I was in the hands of somebody who knew what they were doing and, like, executed a well-considered art project all the way through. Like, this is, like, the precise everything-in-its-place feeling I guess I need from something that's this challenging. And it does have, like, kind of a cathartic payoff, I guess, that I'm, like, missing in, like, the artsier stuff. Uh, and, like I said, I'm a little bit of a simpleton there. Where, like, I need, I need like, my, like, you know, <laughs> gold did, at the end of the rainbow. The end of, and again, not spoiling the ending, but a slow cinema kind of director that I like a lot that we've talked about was Michael Haneke. And pian- we talked about, like, Piano Teacher. Mm-hmm. That catharsis at the end, when you've had this restraint for three hours and then you build up to the emotional climax and you feel it, it really is impactful. Yeah. Yeah. And like Haneke does that really well in his stuff. I think he's very restrained, but when it comes time for the gut punch, you get the gut punch. And so I agree. Like that's what I really loved about the ending 
to this film. It just left me very satisfied, like, oh, shit. For a movie that is somewhat about orgasms, it was like (laughs) edging for three and a half hours. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I don't know if this is like creepy or not. I'm just going to say it. Like, I am a massive people watcher. Mm -hmm. Like, I love like just sitting I'm in a public the police space. right now. <laughs> <laughs> we got a peeping Tom on our hands. I don't like looking through windows, but I like, you know, if I'm like at a park or if I go to a restaurant, like there's something therapeutic about just sitting there in silence and like watching people go about their day. And I had that same feeling with this where like, you know, if you're people watching and like, you know, you're trying to watch someone like, you know, balance like something on a tray and you're like oh fuck it's about to fall it's about to fall it's about to fall and they're like oh they're good they're good and then when it falls you're like oh my god (laughs) like it was the same sort of feeling that i had where i'm like i found just this tranquility like watching her go about even her like day-to-day sucked like there's just something like you know relaxing about like watching her grind her little coffee beans Mm -hmm. every day and you know, peel a little potatoes and put away that fucking sofa bed for her lazy ass son. That was a cool sofa that bed. That sofa bed was Love it. a the miracle. Fringe like a on the bottom. Yeah. So great. Yeah. But you know, there was something about that that I was like, oh, like this is like the same thing I get out of like people watching. I, mm-hmm. But I do think that is getting to the point of like how slow cinema can work. It works yeah. in this movie. Like just meditatively watching her observing her understanding her (laughs) it like it hits differently than a normal like mainstream hollywood sort of thing i will say there's this movie born in flames that i really like uh that's like this like punk like chaotic you know cheap as fuck new york city movie that i love and like there's a sequence in that movie that's like a quick montage of women doing domestic work and then women preparing raw chicken at a factory and then a sex worker putting a condom on a dick and I was like yeah I kind of got the whole John Dealman experience in like three seconds in that movie. <laughs> oh <laughs> that speaks kind of to my like you know sensibilities wait, wait, wait. Wow. okay in that Paul Schrader thing where he's talking about how like slow cinema is kind of like a Catholic sort of idea of transcendentalism or whatever where it's like very slow meditative observant and the presenter asked him like well why couldn't something be transcendental but be exhalation like baptist preachers like totally not slow and methodical like why can't it be just outrageous and i think that's like, what i'm always looking for is yeah, that exact feeling and paul schrader like gave a good answer he's like you know what like that's a really good point and i just haven't seen it yet <laughs> but like there's not that language to me in film yet, but it could exist. And I think that's kind of what you're touching. Like you can get at something that this film is getting at just on the other extreme, but it's probably, I don't know. It's hard to pull off. I don't know if the filmic language is there yet. I I do want to talk about the people watching aspect a little more too. Like, okay. Okay. It is upsetting. Like how empty her daily life is. And like, it makes you think about how most of, daily life is just this empty busyness yeah like i do the same shit constant she's doing tasks all the time it's fucking exhausting especially now that like a lot of women have to do all this labor and have a full-time job to like right. make their households work it's fucking you know miserable to think about but there is like this like satisfaction to like watching her do all these things really well and controlled in the first yeah. part 
where I was like, damn, I wish I had my shit together. Like, right. Sean dude, it was very aspirational. <laughs> like, I was like, I, should I, I does be a everything housewife? with perfection. I yeah. felt, over I felt over that again. way. Like, I really enjoyed watching her do the chores that I like to do. So when she was doing the dishes, I was like, fuck yeah, you're doing a good job of the dish. Yeah. But then later on, when she was like, not washing them properly uh, and they were all soapy. I'm like, ooh, soapy not so that's, good job. That's not Jim. good. How yeah. you, that's not how you're supposed to do the dishes. But then I, my heart <laughs> felt so deeply for her when she put that soapy plate on the, I'm like, oh, yeah. I know you're going to see that. You're going to have to wash that off again. And lo and behold, she did. It like, it killed me when she was doing these things that she you, normally does. Like you felt like you were part of her family yeah. and you were in that little apartment with her. And yeah. You just want to like, Keep her going. Yeah. Also, interesting that she was played by Delphine Seerig, mm-hmm. who I only know from Daughters of Darkness, yeah. where she's like super sexed up. Yeah. Didn't you so, watch uh, last year at Marion Bad with us as well? Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. I totally did. Yeah. yeah. So it was like interesting seeing her in like this, such like a, not like a, I mean, tame, tame role, but you know. I think that was intentional. I think I remember, I watched two Ooh. interviews and I think Chantal ackerman said she wanted to pick her because she's such a star because she thought that would make people think more about the labor that she's doing it's like she is not the kind of person they expect that labor to be like like routine for like if it was just kind of a non like an untrained actor it would be like yeah the like this is what this woman would be doing anyway. But seeing Delphine doing it, it's like you're really paying attention to it. Her physical performance is pretty incredible in this yeah. too. Where like she conveys a very rich inner life with yeah. like basically no dialogue of her own. Like she yeah. reads some letters and stuff out loud and like answers people when they ask her questions. But like yeah. we don't actually hear her thoughts about things. Yeah. And I still feel like we know what she's mm-hmm. thinking or about what she's thinking most of the time. Yeah. And that that is the thing with watching some Robert Bresson films. Like he notoriously hated actors because he wanted non-actors because he felt like actors sort of get in the way of humanity and they're trying to over emote. And that's sort of how I felt about she is an actress, but that's kind of how I felt about her performance. She wasn't like overacting. It was just felt natural and lived in where I was like she disappears into the role she's yeah. not yeah. the vampire seductress she's not uh the like I guess couture like uh yeah damsel in distress from Marion bad yeah you know, like she could do anything she's pretty impressive mm-hmm. yeah I'm a fan I'm gonna be thinking about that fast version of transcendentalism <laughs> for a while because like I do think that happens all the time. Like, I think that's what we like about, like, just to name something off the top of my head, like the last two Gaspar Noe movies, like Climax mm-hmm. and Lux Eterna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very fast and bright and flashy. And I feel like they reach some kind of like ecstatic state in the middle of I, like chaos. I agree. I just don't think maybe Paul Schrader had seen them, yeah. but those, those <laughs> movies do exist out yeah. there. You just yeah. send him an email. You know, <laughs> he's very active on Facebook. Have y'all noticed that? Really? <laughs> uh, he he has like a public Facebook account that he like comments on stuff all the time, and like he's uncancelable because he's an old man. So he says <laughs> shit that's like incredibly offensive on like a weekly basis, and because he's Paul Schrader, like it doesn't matter. Right? I don't, I don't know. It's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I had one more thing that I wanted to say about this film briefly, and that is, you know, I was talking earlier about like boredom that is created that engages you versus doesn't engage you and i really wasn't bored throughout this film particularly but even in the quiet moments the details of the apartment were so kind of like 
lovingly planned. Like it was so interesting to look at that it was really easy to just be engaged with her apartment when she you all you're looking at is her back washing dishes. Like I just thought it was so masterful. And that again made me question like if you're just sitting there absolutely bored out of your mind, like is it your responsibility as a viewer to change that or is part of the craft of this kind of cinema, like creating an engaging image anyway. And Jean Dielman just knocked it out of the park for me. I mean, I'm bored in a lot of like superhero movies. Yeah. They're flashing. It's a, a numbing kind of boredom. Yeah. And that, in those movies, I'm thinking about like, I need to do my taxes or yeah. I need to do the <laughs> dishes. So yeah, boredom, it's different in different films, but it can be a tool. Yeah. It can be a useful tool in this one, I think. I do think in this one too, like the construction of the the scenes, like the individual shots, even though there's not a lot of movement, they're very pretty to look at. Well, they're at. also master shots too, where like if you go to that kitchen, you know exactly what angle you're gonna be looking at that kitchen yeah. from. Like <laughs> it's the same shot over and over again. I will say in one of them, something that, that did take me out of it is in the lighting, you can see the boom mic shadow on uh, <laughs> the back really? wall a little bit. I was like, oh damn. Not so precise after all, huh? <laughs> yeah, sight and sound, best of all time. I think not. <laughs> well, I didn't see it, so I'm going to pretend. I, I did want to, and I don't know. I'm not that big of an asshole. <laughs> we don't have to talk about but we should talk about the fact that this is number one sight and sound movie of all time, right. which is crazy. That's and, a stunt. And, yeah. why, and why does everyone think that is? Well... That's not exactly how the poll works, though, right? Like, it's like it was included on enough lists to reach that position. It was in enough people's, I guess, top 10. Right, to, yeah. right. But that's crazy. It's an audacious choice. It's the least traditionally entertaining film out of the four, you know, Vertigo, Citizen Kane, Bicycle Thieves, and this. Like, yeah. This is the least, like, traditional narrative out of those four films. So which is I think it it's just cool. a stunt? I wanted to bring this up a little bit with the the final thing, but I think it sure. I think it has more to say about the critical class than it has to say about the people making the movies. But uh, I'll get I'll, okay, I'll get we'll into that it. rant sure. later. I'll put a pin in that one <laughs> sure. for now. But there are two filmmakers that are more like the current class of slow cinema auteurs. Yeah, that Brittany and I picked their early films where they hadn't fully gone into like the eight minute shots of nothing territory yet. Like, right. Slow cinema is creeping into their early style, but hasn't quite been solidified in the early 2000s with the two that we picked. Yeah. So I picked a film by Lucretia Martel. And surprisingly, well, this is her first film, but she's only done like four movies. Um, I think like the last one was like in 2019. So she's not like as current. Can I tell you something insane? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> after Zama, she was... Approached for a Marvel film. What? Really? <laughs> Marvel asked her if they what she want. I guess they were like desperate for like um, female directors, <laughs> and they just like found her name on a list. And she was like, "You're not gonna give me enough creative freedom to make the she, kind of yeah, movie I want to make." Oh, she did Zama. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. That's a slow movie. That's a slow movie. It's I like. I like that movie a lot, actually. Do you know what Marvel film? She, was it just any? I don't. Okay. Probably <laughs> Miss Marvel two or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, right? We don't talk about superhero movies. We talk about real art in this God, podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> trash. Um, I don't. But like, I, I watched the movie that 
well, the one that I picked was La Cienega years ago, and I really liked it. So whenever we had the slow cinema topic, I'm like, I yeah, this is this would count as slow cinema, even though like I don't know, it's not as slow, I think, as some of the other films that we've picked so i kind of started to question it like does this meet like a slow cinema Mm -hmm. standard but it does and like that's what threw me off when i first started watching this i was like what kind of this isn't slow cinema like there's all this quick editing and (laughs) brings a lot of bullshit handheld shots and like a lot of action there's not a lot of static but 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 when i read back on like not the criteria but like the techniques of slow cinema and one of the big ones was no narrative and like right. that, I think is the heart of this film. Like it is about, and you know, you can talk about the plot yeah. and whatever, but it's more this like ambling, not really about conflict necessarily. It's like conflict adjacent. It's like a vibe. There's stasis in the narrative, if even the cameras and static. Yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. almost like it's on the same level, I think, as like John Dillman, like. Where we're watching her, just be, but her in her life, there's really nothing going on. Yeah, we're watching these people in the same way. There's a lot of shit going on, but we're just watching them. Like there's no consistency. Like there's no real plot. Also, the if there is like a not a plot, but like a progression, it starts off really busy and gets slower and slower and slower to the point where like literally in the last two movies on this list, we're watching people sleep. (laughs) <laughs> for like right. extended periods and, of time and the movie's called like the swamp yeah i just feel and like you're getting bogged swamp. down in like the like murky yeah. sweaty oh it's muggy baby yeah it's a muggy vibe Ugh, what a nasty little movie i picked <laughs> um i feel like this probably is the trashiest slow cinema movie <laughs> so <laughs> the opening of this movie i've get so much joy from. it's so good you so we're there's a family who's obviously they're they're middle class but middle class in argentina i think is quite different than like how we would define middle class here in like the u.s they are sort of escaping to the country in this dilapidated vacation home that is fucking falling apart but they are such entitled assholes <laughs> As we are like sort of brought in, I love the fucking intro of this where there is this disgusting pool and there's a bunch of like shriveled up little raisin human (laughs) beings who are like passed out, drunk out of their minds. And the matriarch of the family, (laughs) she takes her wine, how I take my wine and how Diane Keaton takes their red wine. We put ice cubes in it. So at first I was like, okay, I understand. Um, so she is so wasted that like her hands are shaking. So you were just listening to these ice cubes clinking in the glass mm-hmm. and they're like beach chairs scraping across yes. the concrete. They're like right. drunk, drunk middle-aged zombies just yes. dragging their, like got a drink on your chest and a cigarette. <laughs> it's in like a mouth. walking dead scene. Yes. It did remind me, yeah. like we were talking about with the jazz fest people that are dragging <laughs> totally. the chairs. Oh my God. Yeah. Zombies. A sea of khakis and white thighs. (laughs) Yes, this is very jazz fest on the last day. Um, (laughs) Sun damaged. (laughs) Right, sun damaged. Have no idea what's going on. So the mother is has her clinking glass of wine, iced red wine, and she is 
taking all the empty wine glasses from all these other adults that are passed out. And then she (laughs) trips and falls onto these glasses. So she's like bleeding out. She's got like shards of glass in her chest and (laughs) no one's doing anything. And she's just lying down. Like she's taking a nap and there's children here. So there's um, sort of a group of teenagers Mm -hmm. and then there's some younger little kids well, the teenagers are like, mom, mom. And they're like, okay, okay. Like she's bleeding a lot. They pick her up and she's like, leave me alone. I'm going to get up. And like the adults still aren't doing shit. Mm-hmm. So these kids are very much neglected and they're like, okay, we have to bring you to the hospital. And the person who initiates that is one of the like housekeepers. There's two. And this woman is like, a fucking monster to them. Like mm-hmm. she's accusing them of like stealing her sheets and towels She's always talking shit about them. Like she is just not one ounce of kindness. And it's because they are uh, indigenous. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, is it like... I think it's Indo-American. Indo-American, yeah. yeah, The Argentine um, Mm -hmm. indigenous uh, folk. So there's a a teenager who's like, I don't know, she's probably more preteen. There's a lot of kids driving cars in here. (laughs) And there's a lot of things that piss me off this woman does, but... It starts to fucking rain. This woman is bleeding. Like, the two individuals who are her, like, you know, house staff are doing all the fucking work. And then they yell at one of them, like, come open the gate, come open the gate. Like, no one can get their ass out of the car to open a fucking gate. So they have this woman, like, fucking run to open this gate. I don't know why that really angered me. So for the remainder of their time at this vacation home that is pure trash... This woman is recovering in bed, but, like, still getting drunk while she's in bed and, like, just becoming more and more of, like, this massive bitch and whining and, like, treating everyone like shit from a bed. It's very, um, Grey Gardens. Grey Gardens, for sure. Yeah, yeah. right. If Grey Gardens had a pool, it'd be most fucking <laughs> disgusting pool. It would be like this yeah. one. It would be called a swamp. Yeah. But, like, there's a lot of... Like, it's, it's hard for, to understand, like, how all of the, like, 80 people in this home are related to each other. Like, mm-hmm. some are brother and sister, some are cousins, some are, like... Kissing cousins. There's a lot of kissing <laughs> yeah. cousins. Um, but th- the thing is, is throughout this entire movie, everyone is sweaty. Even though they bathe sometimes, they're still sweaty and mm-hmm. they look musty as shit. And they're always sharing beds like everyone is in a bed with someone else at some point or another and sometimes they have pants and sometimes they don't um they're always sweaty and their sheets are all stained and full of mud and it's just gross and there's a lot of there's a an a brother the older brother who is like in a relationship with a woman that his like dad was having an affair with his mom on which is like just this ultimate level of like i consider that in in a little bit of incest right you're kind of like trying to mimic your father yeah well, <laughs> i don't know it's at strange. one point at one point he accidentally calls her his mother's name Ugh. so yeah there's this like substitution yeah. and he's like sleeping when he comes because he comes down from like his apartment in buenos aires yeah, he's a city to, boy yeah to like see his mother 
and he's like sleeping in her bed a lot with yeah her. so there's like and like, he has this weird thing with his sister i think that's his sister that his, uh, with the curly tell. hair sister or cousin one I th- of the two, yeah, yeah i couldn't tell i thought maybe it was his co- there was either a, way a layer of removal right like yeah. he's like obviously he's way older than her too so it's very inappropriate like there's this really (laughs) uncomfortable scene where they have like a mud fight and she's taking a shower and then he like goes in the bathroom and they're so silent and he like puts his like nasty little leg in and she like covers herself she's like get out get out and he's like let me muddy up your no. shower. Yeah. I like that costuming choice of giving him the most cliche, like, indie fuckboy haircut. Oh, from yeah. The early 2000s. So 2001. Like, he has, like, a teenager's haircut, even though he's, like, obviously, right. like, in his middle age. The 20s. lost member of the All American Rejects. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he played bass on, like, Phantom Planet or some shit. Right. The dirtbag indies. Oh, God. And I'm just, it's just weird. Like, like, what do you do? Like, what do these people do? They don't work. They're rich. The, right. They're the, the very, very idle rich. They're idle. Yeah all the time oh my god they sweat for a living and all they do is nap yeah they're just always lying down they're always on their backs and then the 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 big thing is there's this like lord of the flies shit happening because none of these fucking kids have any supervision the teenagers kind of for the most part have their head on straight but oh my god there's like this set of like little asshole boys who are like just as racist as their mother yeah so it's like that learned behavior Mm -hmm. and that's when you kind of realize like this is just going to be a generational thing that's going to go on and on until this place falls into the ground where they they go out in the woods they love having these shotguns with them and they shoot right fucking animals and they're horrible to like the native kids who are hanging around and they had there's like really gross scene where like he keeps like checking his like dog's butthole and vagina and it's like yeah one of those kids fucked her i think and i'm like oh my god like just horrible i felt really bad for all the dogs in this movie because like everyone's kind of mean to him like they have these dogs around and then they're just like they kick them or they're just inappropriate with them they're just bad people but there is a younger preteen i think she's like the only one that i think has some quality to her even her though like the way she like treats her favorite maid as like a pet i just figured that i thought she like has like a lesbian like crush on her it was a a little creepy the way she was like she's wielding her looking at her all like maybe that okay yeah i took it as she like is like not sure how to like feel about it yeah i had the same thought as you Brittany. i thought that she has this huge crush on her but also like she is in a position of power over her that yeah. she doesn't fully understand. And that like, like Isabel kind of has, to, Isabel's the maid and she kind yeah. of has to like do what mommy wants because, right. but I th- I think mommy legitimately does like her, but also doesn't understand anything about personal boundaries. And right. like leave she, this person she alone. She's aut- an autonomous person. Like she doesn't understand how to express love because I don't think like this family does it. Yeah. If anything, she can like roll her eyes and leave the room when like the drunk matron of the house like says something racist to her. Mm-hmm. But like the other yeah. 23 hours of the day, she has this teenager hanging around her neck and like yeah, like right. o- that's almost more emotional labor for this child to yeah. have such a like overwhelming crush in her. Right. It's like even You're if right. it's not malicious, it's still like a sign of like how caustic this class setup is within yeah. the household. Right. Like 
I'm like, I hope you steal something. I hope you steal. Like, the thing is, nothing's worth anything. Or at in least there. get to go to Carnival. Like, so, yeah. While, while all these people are like rotting in the house, we are very much aware that there's this huge citywide Carnival celebration. Like outside of right. our periphery yeah. and there's nothing that like they're doing like there's two individuals and they're there to just get like drinks when they want drinks like it's it's yeah. crazy yeah well and even the carnival is kind of ruined for her because she goes there to like dance with right. her friends and then the older son comes and he's like pawing that at her shit. and again like treating her like his property right which causes a huge fight it's like right. she really can't escape it yeah he does all. get his ass whooped though which he is does nice. it's very satisfying and then he goes home and don't like that's when they, his like sister and cousin like we're gonna take his pants off and we're gonna take his yeah. shirt off we're just gonna watch him okay so i really like this movie <laughs> um because it's like i said before I, there's something so trashy and tragic about it that it's so entertaining for me to watch yeah this was the second time I've seen this movie, and I also really liked it. I think I I might have cooled on it just a little bit since the first time, uh-huh. because there was still, like, like, a lot of the relationships were unclear to me. And part of that is just, like, the experience of being at a family reunion where, like, okay, I know my aunt and my uncle, and then there are all these other people that, mm-hmm. like, I don't... So the, it kind of works, um, but there was, like, a general sense of like a lack of clarity that that I didn't know. I mean, it might have been intentional, but it some of it felt like maybe it wasn't. And then I think the ending was really interesting, but uh-huh. it didn't totally wrap up in the way that I wanted it to. Oh, not at all. But <laughs> I thought like the setting is so fucking cool, like so gross and just green and like mildewy. Right. I thought you the can re- smell it. Yeah. I thought the relationships were super interesting and like interesting in, in ways that I haven't seen in like similar family movies set in the United States. Like the uh, just like really close family relationships. And then the class dynamics were really interesting. Yeah. And the sound design I thought was so good. Like like you said, the clinking of the glass, yeah. and then like you're he- constantly hearing like drips in the background, yeah, which like flies, yeah, buzzing, right? It's like the fan going like sticky. it's constantly putting you in that environment so effectively. Yeah. Like I thought that that was really masterful. I mean, this movie had the most action probably of any of the movies that we watched. I would say, and it was the hardest for me to get through and i don't know i don't know if it was just me i was pretty cool on it too to be honest I, and i agree with everything y'all said like i get the vibe it's like that sticky humid we've all been too hot in new orleans to do anything <laughs> right yeah, yeah you felt your body like slow down in real time like this but i think what i struggle with and why this movie was a good choice in context of the other films we talked about was like again it's the most action the most like cuts you know editing wise it's got a more dynamic score i think what like why i was cool on it was it has so many characters and i don't know who any of them are which i think is like the vibe like hana was saying it's like it felt like a family reunion to a family that i'm not even in in like a country i'm not even in and i couldn't quite latch on to any individual person which i think was by design i think that's supposed to be the vibe but i think it's that slow cinema like lack of narrative 
where I'm just like watching people. I don't really know who they are, hang out, be hot and disgusting. (laughs) I got it on a level, but there were moments where I was just like, the boredom was the wrong kind of boredom in these kind of movies. But I don't, that was like my personal take on it. I think it follows the same trajectory as every one of these, except for sleep has her house, which like it starts off very busy with a lot of quick cuts and a lot of Mm -hmm. action. Yeah. But as it goes on, it kind of unravels and less and less and less happens. And then it just kind of like peters out. But I guess I, I understood. Yeah. I understood John Dealman. Like I understood her as a character and what she was going through. And well, I guess that I'm, one doesn't peter out. That one like well, that unravels one in a up. different way. Yeah. But when I'm watching her like do dishes or drop a potato, it's like I feel what she is going right. through. And in this, I th- like There's you said like because none of that. well because I didn't under like you said didn't understand the Argentinian politics behind it and yeah. I didn't quite grasp the characters' relations to yeah. one another that I was just sort of like what am I watching? It's like here? you're no, we're not given the opportunity to like really bond with any character, but I think like. The reason I think I enjoyed it so much is, like I said, like there's like this aspect of people watching, yeah, yeah, that I like, I like enjoy that I've gotten this, and I love my drama, <laughs> and it's just like dramatic, trashy people. Like I can watch it all day. I, I did love the vibe, like y'all were saying though, of like it captures the kind of texture of hot, humid, gross, yeah. sweaty bodies on top of each other mm-hmm. taking naps. Like One thing we haven't mentioned yet is that, uh, you know, the guy gets beaten at Carnival. Yeah. Uh, there's a child that gets, you know, brutally injured in the film as well. There's another child who I believe gets shot in the eye. I'm trying to remember how that played out. He, he was, he he was already shot in the eye, but it was already, okay. yeah. But I just like how over the course of the film, even though not that much happens, they keep accumulating these like injuries. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, you're right. Like every now and then, like someone's lying down and you're like, why are there, why is their face all scratched? Scratched. Up? Yeah. Bruised. Oh, and the mom, <sighs> like cleaning the wound, like the child's wound. Yeah, the little yeah, boy with like, an extra tooth. I do like that they're like worse off every single day physically. I think right. that's kind of a fun accumulation. Yeah, oh, I forgot to talk about the cousin. Like we're talking about like who the hell are they? Like who are they to each other? Yeah. Like, probably a cousin that um, it seems like she doesn't like live in the city, but maybe like in a busier part of town. And she's like going back and forth with her gaggle of kids. Yeah. And they keep talking about like, Gotta get those school supplies in Bolivia. Here it's really cheap. Yeah, get anything from tennis shoes to pencils. Uh-huh. And they say it over yeah. and over again. I was so <laughs> I was actually emotionally invested in that storyline because yeah. I don't know. Can I talk about what the outcome of that is? Sure. This they, movie's like two decades old. <laughs> okay, okay, great. So they want to go on this so the two cousins, the matriarch and her cousin, who's like coming to visit her want to go on this trip to Bolivia and like the feeling that I had was like they need to get out of this place it's like so kind of caustic there's so many like family difficulties and they want to make it work and the cousin is like asking her husband about like what papers do I need to go to Bolivia and he's discouraging her from going and saying it's too dangerous And there are all these comparisons between the two husbands throughout the film, like the husband of the matriarch is people repeatedly talk about what a a she's like dying his hair, right? (laughs) Trying to go to carnival and like, you know, get up to something. Whereas like 
the cousin's husband is this like very like, oh, he's a great guy and so dependable. So she's telling him like she keeps saying, I want to go to Bolivia. I want to go like, what do I need to do? And he's not responding to her. And then she's getting in the car and the ki- these kids are in the car with her and they have these thing these like supplies and she said where do you where do you get these and they said well dad bought them for us and then he she leaves the car she opens the back door and he's bought all of the school supplies yeah on the list so that she doesn't have a reason to go to bolivia and that like as a child who is like parents were divorced and were also relatively wealthy like that kind of passive aggressive oh, yeah. action was like yeah. so, like I was gutted by that you know as stupid as it is like these are very privileged people but right. it's like and then she tells her cousin and her cousin's like oh well he's such a wonderful man like my husband would never do that for me but she's also disappointed Aww. and it's like because like any sense of freedom she yeah felt like got taken away yeah i thought that that was a really effective no, you're right like that felt so true to the kinds of like power struggles that you have in that like socioeconomic sphere when you did say like um i forgot to find to mention that too like how it's like nobody can leave yeah like there's right. this sense yeah. of like more people keep coming yeah but like there is it's like they're almost trapped in this house and this house almost feels like a fucking yeah. character in this movie it's like there's this gravitational pull. it's like a like black hole yeah. like sucking people in that's actually why i'm cold in this movie though is like that bunwellian like exterminating angel uh-huh. situation where it's like you cannot leave this place is its best quality mm-hmm. and like that opening sequence around the poolside I got that feeling already. It's like, yeah. oh, they're so lethargic and just drunk and just mm-hmm. stuck here and rotting next to this pool that no one's cleaned in like decades since they were children. And like <laughs> my ideal version of this movie is the Boonwell version where like we would just watch them yes. drag their yeah, chairs yeah, yeah. from one totally. side of the pool to the other. That's exactly what James was saying. I was thinking that. I was like, that first scene is so it's masterful. So it is. Yeah. And I'm like slow cinema the shit out of it and i just want to watch them sit by the pool drink themselves to death and i don't want any camera move i just like want to sit with these characters understand them but watch them be like disgusting the thing is human the, be- like she has pushed her craft since then to do stuff more like that like yeah. zama is this guy kind of just stuck on an island awaiting orders for his like higher ups yeah. in the military and he just like is just stuck and like the ways that he gets more and more like trapped there makes the movie absurdist in the same way that like a Bunuel film would be. And like what's missing is when we leave that opening segment and we go to the family drama, which is interesting character studies, they're interesting and like there are like these like little petty betrayals and like taboos and you know, just like slow moral rot among these like fucked up rich people but it's like i've actually seen that style of like subtle drama a lot of times in like film festival type movies over the years and it's like i kind of need a little bit of a stunt for it to feel like an all-timer or something Mm -hmm. yeah well that's what i was saying with like the non-narrative it's like but it's character driven so it's like i want to understand these characters and their relationship but you're not giving me that and if you're not giving me the absurdist like just watching them sit by the pool lounging then what am i doing here like you kind of get the point early and then like 
sitting in it for that this length is like just uncomfortable, which is part of which, which is, is the, the point. point. But sure. like, yeah, maybe it's more like interesting to think about once it's over than it is to like actually go through it scene by scene in some ways. But there are moments that are like fucked up and upsetting. And I did. I mm-hmm. liked what I really liked was the vibe, the sticky, sweaty vibe. Relatable. Relatable. If you live anywhere as far south as we do, it's pretty mm. relatable. We're the same as Salta, Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> but I struggle with this stuff in general. Um, when James brought up this topic, the director that immediately came to mind was a pitcher pong for Seth the Cool, who I've seen three of his movies now. Um, so a pitcher pong is like this gay filmmaker, and he's considered like a political dissident in Thailand because like his sexuality crops up in his movies and he's like one of the more like acclaimed notable Thai filmmakers. So like his government doesn't necessarily like that his movies are like presenting that version of Thailand to an international audience. And he makes monster movies, which like, if I'm going to like a slow cinema movie, I want to like these like Roger Corman versions of the genre. Cause like, that's where I'm coming from, you know? And the few I've seen, I saw uh, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, which I feel like is probably his most acclaimed one. And uh, more recently, Memoria, which is his first English language movie with Tilda Swinton. And by the time that happened, like he is fully committed to the slow cinema aesthetic. There's this scene where Tilda Swinton meets this man in the jungle who like dies on camera and then comes back to life eight minutes later. And uh, in those eight minutes, you just watch his dead face not move on the screen. Oof, and God. literally, I was begging for the movie to be fucking over. In the <laughs> what? That sounds like, awesome. Fuck this. Oh, that sounds no. awesome. To I was me. infuriated because, like, in <laughs> that the same movie, trick as a ghost story. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I but, like but that. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> but in that movie, she's like haunted by this sound that's kind of like her sleep demon almost. Like it like wakes her up in the middle of the night. It's like thud that she can't locate, and like it brings her on this like adventure that has all these like uh colonialist implications about what she's doing in like the um in the amazon rainforest as this like researcher it's like fascinating stuff but the movie withholds the like payoffs that you would expect from that kind of thing and i'm just determined to break through and enjoy one of these at this point like i'm like i keep putting in the effort um if i was a more generous podcast co-host i would have made y'all watch one of his more iconic ones like that Instead, we watched his, de- I believe, his debut feature, Tropical Malady, yeah. or at least the first one of like notoriety mm-hmm. on an international scale, which actually is on the sight and sound list as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Tropical Malady is the closest I've gotten to enjoying one of his works. <laughs> Can't say I quite got there. <laughs> a glowing review. <laughs> it's a bifurcated structure, which is interesting because, you know, usually most traditional stories are in three acts or if you're going to do an anthology film it'll be a set of three so like that is a a complete set and like a balanced structure but like when you have like two sections what you are asked to do by the artist is like contrast and compare yeah Mm -hmm. so like in this movie the opening segment is this um kind of like low-key indie (laughs) rom-com where where this like soldier falls in love with this farmer boy um, and it's this very like sweet, cute romance. It's very tentative because uh, they have to kind of hide their physical affection for each other. But they're also playing around with doing it in open sight. Mm-hmm. Like how physically affectionate can two men be in public before it's a problem is like something they're toying with. The segment kind of ends on this bittersweet note where like 
We witness what is likely an act of homophobic violence on the streets, like an act of gay bashing. And then the soldier just kind of like goes back to his job and like leaves his like farmer boyfriend alone. So it it ends on this like kind of sad note, but a lot of it leading up is cute. Like they go to a date Mm -hmm. to the cinema, they lie around in each other's laps in kind of like the countryside and uh, they go to a karaoke bar and, you know, watch these like pop songs play out. Yeah. I like those little like interjections of kind of absurdism. Yeah. And in those sections there, there are a few moments that are like, okay, this is exactly what I like about his work where it's like, while they're laying around, just kind of talking and chatting, this woman tells them a fable about greed mm-hmm. and uh, this like shaman that uh, tells these men they can bring these stones out of the river and it'll make them rich. Uh, and they get too greedy and go back for more stones and uh, what once turned into gold then turns into hopping frogs and they're mm-hmm. like riches hop away from them. And then immediately after she tells the story about um, her watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on TV. <laughs> So she's kind of like retelling the fable a second time, but like in modern pop culture terms. Mm-hmm. And it's like that scene is such a perfect encapsulation of what's so cool about his work is like it's such a matter of fact, like magical realism style of fantasy cinema. where like there are ghosts and ghouls and goblins and spirits and like aliens and things in his films, but they're treated as just like a natural part mm-hmm. of life that like sort of like drift in and drift out. It's like, hey, hey, spirit, like nice to see you. Yeah. Like, it's like as if any other character that like, walked in the frame. I love that. I'm starting to question in this early stuff, though, like, is this slow cinema? You know, this is like a pretty standard indie rom-com. OK, maybe there are a few shots where like people are sleeping in a hammock for a few minutes uh-huh. or like, uh, you know, lingering more and more as the, as the romance goes mm-hmm. on. So like, okay, maybe he hasn't pushed it uh, to its furthest extreme yet. And then you get to the second segment, (laughs) which has its own title card. It's called A Spirit's Path. And it features this soldier in the jungle who encounters a shape-shifting shaman who has been stuck in the form of a tiger. And we are told a lot of this backstory through these like storybook illustrations and storybook um, handwritten narration. Mm -hmm. And... There is very little dialogue. Um, I think most of it is spoken by a monkey <laughs> that encounters the soldier as he's being stalked in the woods by this tiger. And in the contrast and compare segments, what you're supposed to do is think about how this like stalking of the soldier by the shape-shifting shaman, who is mostly a tiger but sometimes a naked man with looks like tiger stripes tattooed on his body, what does that have to do with the bittersweet romance from the first half? And it's like, okay, I kind of get the push and pull there. There's a lot to think about, about like love and how dangerous it feels to like be vulnerable and like give yourself up to it. And like how like being consumed by it Mm -hmm. is like a risky move, especially between two men in a society that like will not allow that kind of love. That's interesting. But half the movie is just like ambient jungle sound. And right. nothing happening, and I was bored out of my fucking skull. <laughs> so, yes, I, I agree with you. It is interesting to think about. Like, I think it works, the two in contrast to Conceptually. one another. Conceptually, yeah. But the experience of watching it, those jungle scenes that go on for 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's the slow cinema. Oof. Oh, yeah. my God. That, that was rough. And it's weird, and it's weird because... <laughs> You, we've been talking about this whole episode, like in those slow moments, if it's working, 
you should be leaning in and thinking about, okay, how does this connect? How does, and I think the connections in this are pretty obvious what it's about and what its metaphors are and all that. But that didn't work for me either. There's like 30, 40 minutes where he's just walking in the jungle and nothing is happening. (laughs) I really was questioning like, what am I doing here? Yeah. It's uh, so frustrating. Like I was so like I'm like okay I'm over this I'm over this like something <laughs> fucking has to. But happen. I really liked I liked the first half a lot. I liked the rom com of them just sitting talking. You know the scene in the cinema where their legs love are crossing. The scene. Yeah, it was like capturing that awkward adolescent. That's kind a real of love. movie. Yeah, that was a real. <laughs> mo- and then we get to the like the more slow cinema stuff, and. Like you said, I get it conceptually, but no, it it that part of it didn't work for me. But I still really admired the movie, especially when it finally got to him confronting the panther. It did connect with me, like yeah. what it was all about. But too much of a lull of like slow cinema that just was boring that took me out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like it wasn't purposeful slow cinema. Like it almost felt like. Nothing about it was necessary. Yeah. Just elongating time for no purpose. Yeah. And that's when it can be very tedious. Yeah. And his, even his going through the forest didn't seem purposeful to me exactly. And that like, like he was also pursuing the tiger, right? Like he was seeking it out because Mm -hmm. it's been killing cows and the monkey gives him like two options, right? Like either you kill the tiger to set him free of his lust for you. Or you like give your body up to yeah. the tiger. Yeah. So it like I I really liked the first half. Then there's like a half an hour that I just totally don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and then I really liked the ending connecting to the the first half. Even though mm-hmm. like I wish that I could feel the same chemistry at the end as I did in the beginning because I feel like that would connect those two halves a little better like there's this really voracious chemistry between these two and it's like innocent but also they're like interacting with each other's bodies sexually in a way that's like absolutely exploratory and experimental they're like they're like licking and devouring each other's hands and like you know, when they're playing around at the movie theater, like clamping each other in a way that's not like traditionally romantic. It's really like, like that really communicated this kind of devouring, encompassing love. And that's literally what happens at the ending. So it's like, that did mesh for me, but I just wish that I had felt that same kind of like passion and danger at the end. And I feel like he's been rewarded more for the empty stillness of the ending yeah. than he was for the stuff that honestly is more emotionally impactful, but like less distinct in like the broader pool of indie cinema. Like yeah. you can find that kind of like subtle body language romance in other low budget movies. The empty stalking through the jungle is like a little rarer to find, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's like, how you get into the art house. You know, yeah, and here's where I get into my like <laughs> galaxy brain rant. We're like, there's two ways you can take this complaint that I think I'm constantly having here, which is like, either it's the artist's fault and like the emperor has no clothes, 
mm-hmm. where like these works are being lauded as genius, even though there's not actually anything there. And like the audience is bringing more to it than the art is, yeah. which I guess is closer to how I feel about sleep has her house where it's like, I don't actually feel like the product is like fully formed, but Fair. I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as to say like, you know, this guy's a phony with like right. nothing to bring to the table. Like I feel like he has great work in him. So that's not really what I want to attack here. What I want to go for is the critical class that lauds this stuff as the best cinema in the market. And I think what it is, and I think the reason that we're seeing more and more slow cinema crop up in these like greatest films of all time lists is that these fucking jaded motherfuckers in New York who watch (laughs) three or four movies a day uh, because the city is just overwhelmed with options and you can see like repertory screenings every day of the week of shit you've never seen before. They get every new release. They're just like overloaded with content. I think their brains are fucking broken. (laughs) I think they're numb. And like anything that's quote unquote different is going to stick out to you. So if you see like eight genre films in a day, um, if you if for your job, you have to watch a new Marvel and DC movie and a new John Wick movie and a new shoot 'em up loud action flick every day of the week, your brain is going to be fucking numb. And like, by the time you get to a movie that like slows down and shows you like ambient sounds of the jungle for two hours, you're probably finally like, Oh, <laughs> I, well, I was thinking about it in term like Mark Commode had the same where he's talking about Sundance and how people give 10 minute standing ovations or, 20 minute standing ovations. And he's like, yeah, that's the norm because they watch a bunch of movies. And like when they see something that is different, yeah, they get excited about it. And like mm-hmm. the slow cinema, it's difficult. And I think mm-hmm. like critics and people that watch a lot of movies, like sort of get off on the idea, like this movie is not for your average moviegoer. It's hard. You got to like really think about it and, like galaxy brain it mm-hmm. to understand it. And that like satisfies some part of them. And I do think that's like kind of the appeal for me. Like these films are difficult. Like all the films we talked about in this episode episode are hard films to get through. And I we're all tired. We work other full-time jobs. <laughs> so like, <laughs> but, but, but what I will say in defense of this episode and with this genre is like this as a style, I think there are techniques in all these films that work in like bringing you into the story more than regular cinema does. I don't want to see like all slow cinema, but I want to see these techniques. Like I said, like Haneke and some other directors that use it in like a specific way that it's very effective. It can be very effective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't has, have to be your whole style and it doesn't have to be suffocating and difficult just for the sake of being difficult. It is a good technique in probably small doses. I I do want to drill down on that professional difference a little bit though. Like we work a full-time job, then we come home and watch movies for fun, right? Or for an artistic intellectual pursuit, but like, come on, Mm. you want it to be a little fun. It's a hobby. A little fun. So like, yeah. If your job is to watch movies all day, this is a relief to slow things down. Mm -hmm. If my job is really hard and I'm tired and I want to like find 90 minutes of escapism before I go to bed, I'm not going to throw on John Dealman because it's twice as long (laughs) as what I want it to be first off. But it's also like intellectually, you know, like you said, challenging. And John Dealman in that case 
is worth the challenge and I think like very much worth the effort. Some of these other ones, I don't know that they are. I feel I feel like they're mm-hmm. like a little messy and like unformed. And I think that they're getting a little pumped up by people who find relief in them. Right. Like these movies require like resources in terms of energy and time in ways that yeah. other movies don't. And I think also that, you know, James, you were saying that like people like critics might defend these movies as like these are the highest art because they're difficult. Like I feel like there's an element of like hazing in a fraternity where it's like I've put all of this energy into this, so I'm going to find the thing that I like about this film. So like it's just a lot easier to absorb like a lot of slashers in a short period of time and not be like strung out basically. But I do think that like these films bring up a really interesting idea about about time. Like we talk about this all the time on the podcast about yeah, I liked it. It was a zippy hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It was a zippy hour and 10 and the way that these films, not all these films were 3 hours long, you know, most were an hour and a half. Yeah. And what fascinates me about it is like how you can take an hour and a half and watch two episodes like Real Housewives or watch whatever Netflix show that we watch. Or listen to it while you scroll on your phone more. Right. right. And it it, like hour and a half is not an hour and a half. It's different. These movies are the same period of time and yet they feel like, oh my God, like I'm feeling the time passing. Whereas like, I don't feel the time passing watching a Netflix show. And that is fascinating how it can feel different. Like, What's different about it? It's all time. Yeah. But it's not. And that is an art to make time feel longer expanded than it is. So again, that's getting into like, I don't know, some like (laughs) theoretical You kind of have to. It's an abstract topic. That's actually interesting though. Because like there were some some movies like Tropical Malady for some reason like after a little bit, I'm like, this. it felt more like a task yeah. Yeah. than like a they pleasurable do. experience. And I'm just like, what is it about this movie that's making me feel like- It's a, giving nothing. A ta- right. <laughs> but, but then I thought about that nothing, too, where I'm darling. like, I, I, but I could put on like garbage. Yeah. As long as just, it's like two, you know, episodes of some, some real quippy hot garbage. And I'm like, oh God, this is right. making my day. Yeah. Just aware of the passage it's interesting. of time. Yeah. That was another thing that came out in the Chantal Ackerman interview. Like she carefully planned the length of the scenes. And she she said, like, I know that if it's a two minute scene, it's going to feel like a five minute scene. So like Tropical Malady, I think it was only an hour and 40 minutes. That movie felt like three hours. Yeah. It felt longer than Jean Yeah, Dillman exactly. Did. Jean yeah. Dillman felt like 100%. it felt like three hours, two and a half hours to me. That movie was like, I felt like I spent my whole day watching Chopper. Yeah. I was groaning towards the end of the movie. And like, <laughs> get I'm it. I was wondering, like, the extra tidbits you've been telling us about Jean Dillman. It's like, I've, I get more appreciation for things when I know, like, how people, like, strategically, like, yeah. plan something out. Or I did this for this reason. Like, initially going in, I'm like, I didn't know all this. But it's almost like I have more of an appreciation for the, when I know the why behind it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe if I understand why more of that went on with Tropical Malady, right. maybe I'd appreciate it more and have a different experience. 
instead of I going just, in blindly. I don't know. I appreciate this style of filming. Like yeah. that's why I wanted to talk about it. I appreciate it, and I think when it works, it is sort of transformative. I don't want to say like spiritual, but it like it's a different style of filmmaking, and it is creeping into the mainstream, and that does make me happy. But I I understand Brandon's point about like the critics needing a relief from. Well, I just wonder when the, when the pushback will kick in, especially yeah. like that now that like the critical class is freelancers who probably do have other jobs um, more so than it used to be. Oh yeah, like you know, it's been twenty years since um, a Pitchapong and Martell like started making movies. Like maybe we've reached a boiling point now that like the greatest film of all time is a slow cinema film. Mm-hmm. That like maybe some of these might start falling off the list to make room for I don't know like Suspiria or. Texas Chainsaw Massacre or these like kind of genre classics because those are the movies that are like also creeping up on festival dockets a lot right now like you know high concept horror films mm-hmm. um, this is happening at the same time so there's there's a push and pull there and I wonder if the tide's going to flow a little more in the other direction I, what my hope is that it starts to get into genre films like especially in like cringe comedies mm-hmm. when the camera doesn't cut when you want it to cut and you have to sit in the moment that is slow cinema, and it's very effective in comedies. It's very effective in horror films, too, where it lingers and it doesn't cut where you want it to cut and you're uncomfortable. Like, I want to see it go out of art house films and go into, like, mainstream genre I feel like films. that's already happened, though. Like, Ari Aster's cuts linger. They do, uh, yeah. A Pitchapong is making monster movies. And then on the comedy side... I can't remember the director's name, but the guy who did the Tim Heidecker and uh, Greg Turkington movies that are like anti-comedy dramas. Well, I was saying the comedy. The comedy. And and yeah. I can't remember yeah. the name of the Greg Turkington one, but like there's a slower needling of the audience in yeah. those movies. I like that. And the guy that directed A Pigeon Set on a Branch. Uh, Roy Anderson. Yeah. yeah those are slow mm-hmm. as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, and they're very funny. And they're yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And they're beautiful and funny. So yeah, I just hope it gets out of like the hoity-toity critical darling art housing and more into and it and like you said, it already has, but I think these techniques can be used to great effect in genre films. Well, next week we're talking about horror movies the whole episode, so I'll be um, sated. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my artistic values will not be as harshly challenged. <laughs> We're going to talk about movies we happen to watch at Overlook, which will vary a lot from person to person on the microphone right now. Uh, we, this is not very well planned out yet, so uh, just wait for an Overlook Film Fest report on the next podcast feed, and we'll talk to you all then. Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye.